Today's reading from the Word of God comes from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scripture. Once again, that's John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They then believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Bryn. I am one of the pastors here at Anchor Bay. I am so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. So we just want to take a minute and be quiet before the Lord and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us with whatever we brought into our story this morning. Whatever is mulling around in your mind and your memories, we want to offer that to God to speak to us through the scriptures. So I'm going to give us a minute to be quiet and just kind of center ourselves on who Christ is, and then I will open with a word of prayer after a moment. Lord God, we thank you that in the person of Jesus, we have someone who both provides wine to keep the party going at a wedding and who flips the tables that need flipping in our lives. We pray this morning that you would teach us to be more and more like you, that we would be convicted, that we would see seeds in ourselves that don't need to grow, weeds that are growing that we've been watering, and that instead you would flourish the fruit of your spirit in our lives instead. So we offer this time to you. We pray that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, that you would continue to heal us and change us. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who here lives in Salem? Oh, way more than I thought. I thought most of our Salem people would be watching from the live stream. So hello if you're watching from the live stream. Because Salem has been crazy this month, right? Salem is usually crazy in the month of October, but this month has been especially extra. The population in Salem is usually around 45,000 people, but just last Saturday alone, there were 101,000 extra tourists who came to Salem. We've already clocked in at 1.6 million tourists who have joined Salem this month, and we're still a week away from Halloween, which is nuts. Historically in the past, it's been about 1 million. Now we're almost doubling it. Uh, residents are saying that like sidewalks are literally just stopping. Like people are walking down the sidewalk and then they just stop because there's no more room to go. It's just a standstill. 
My husband and I lived in Salem for five years. We lived right next door to the House of Seven Gables, which is kind of right in the heart of things. And people who were visiting didn't always seem to realize that there are like real human beings who live in Salem. And so they would just look in, a, in our living room windows like it was a Disneyland attraction. <laughs> like, why? What is the draw of Salem this time of year? Obviously, it's Salem's rich maritime history, right? Tourists are coming out in droves to check out one of the oldest settlements in the country. They want to see the town that served as a base for Revolutionary War heroes. They're probably all here to visit cultural centers like the Salem Willows and the Peabody Essex Museum. They want to see where the National Guard got started, the birthplace of Nathaniel Hawthorne, where the Parker brothers set up their toy business, right? No, they are here because of Halloween. Salem's biggest claim to fame is the Salem Witch Trials. It was an epidemic of mass hysteria that resulted in the hanging of 19 people, mostly women, and the pressing to death of one man in the 1690s. And it's not just this, the Salem witch trials that have popularized the city of Salem as a witch destination. You've got Harry Potter, Bewitched in the 60s, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Hocus Pocus, Hocus Pocus 2 this year. They all have connections to Salem. People basically come to Salem this time of year just to get spooked. Now, I'm not going to come up here and wholesale condemn Salem tourism as a destination. Personally, I think a lot of it isn't good fun. I love the costumes. I love the candy and the parades, the, the boost to Salem's economy, especially for small businesses after the pandemic. My friend Stephen White is the pastor of First Baptist Church in Salem, where we used to meet as a congregation. So many of us are familiar with that church. And he was interviewed by a local newspaper about how he felt about Halloween tourism. And he said this. He said, this is a community, Salem, that prides itself on respect and love. People come here because they can freely be themselves. More and more Americans are looking for a spiritual anchor. Maybe it begins with magic. Maybe it leads them to Jesus. But why wouldn't we all want to walk down that path together? So some of Salem's tourism can be fun, and some of it can lead to really helpful conversations. And at the same time, there are some big and important questions that Salem is constantly wrestling with, like whether or not a witch-based tourism industry is the best way to honor the legacy of a group of people who were executed by unjust means. So whether or not this is ultimately a good thing or a bad thing, it's a really important question, but that's a question for another sermon. What I do think is interesting is why people come to Salem around Halloween. Halloween has no roots in Salem. Like, the two really don't have anything to do with each other. And Salem wasn't always the Halloween destination of the world. Like, can you imagine in the 1700s, people just coming up on horseback to get funnel cakes and show off their Tinkerbell costumes? <laughs> no. Salem is what it is today by design. So contrary to popular belief, no accused witches were ever actually burned in Salem. The Salem witch trial didn't even happen in the modern city of Salem. They happened in Danvers, Ipswich, and Andover, which was all kind of this big region that a lot of it was called Salem at the time. Even Salem's famous witch house housed zero actual witches. So the 1960s roll around, and Salem city leaders are like, hey, so maybe we could capitalize on what people believe to be true about Salem. And they introduced these kind of cartoonish witches as part of their PR campaigns. And they started selling souvenirs. And they set up haunted tourist traps. People who claimed to be practicing witches came and moved into town and set up shop. And over time, Salem became to be known as Witch City. 
But the modern city of Salem, it only really has a very few actual historical connections to the Salem witch trials and even fewer to Halloween. The witch tourism of Salem barely resembles the roots of Salem's actual history. And our story this morning in the Gospel of John takes place in a scene that is a lot like that. So if you put your Bibles away, I'd invite you to turn, open them up, turn with me to the Gospel of John, to the passage that Tina read a few minutes ago, John chapter 2. And we're going to take a look at this really interesting passage. So this morning we are continuing our year-long sermon series in the Gospel of John. Last week, Pastor Brent told the story of Jesus' first miracle. It was when he turned water into wine at a wedding. But he started by talking about chapter one. You get this picture of the the God of the universe, this majestic, personal, all-powerful, all-knowing being doing the cha-cha sling at a wedding with his mom. And at first it seems like that story and this morning's story couldn't be further apart. But that's what I love about Jesus, right? When Jesus comes into our lives, sometimes he fills our tables and he absorbs our shame. Another time, he flips our tables, and he spills everything to, to the ground, and he changes everything. Both of these passages in John 2, they point to who Jesus really is. Both of these passages show us the purpose of what he does, and both of these passages invite us into a more full and beautiful way to live. So take a look at verse 13. It says, when, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, so let's imagine the scene. We are in Jerusalem. And if you go to Jerusalem back then, the biggest thing that you would see, the first thing that you would notice is the temple. It was in the center of everything. There was one Jewish historian who described it like this. He said, the temple was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun, it reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done with the sun's own rays. So the temple was a big deal. It was the beating heart of Judaism. It was kind of like their cathedral and their castle and their city hall and their cultural center all wrapped into one golden package. And it was just kind of looming over them like the sun. But more important than anything else about the temple was that this community believed that this temple was a symbol that pointed to the place where heaven and earth would collide. This was a reminder It was a sign that pointed to God, the God who lived and ruled among them. The temple wasn't just the place that they met God. It was this reminder that they could meet God, that they could be in a relationship with their God. So they're at the temple, and it's Passover. And Passover is one of the biggest Jewish festivals of the time, and of our time. It was when the Jewish people would remember their liberation from slavery in Egypt They would celebrate their freedom, and people would come out in droves for it. It was like the Halloween in Salem of temple times. Historians believe that as many as three million people would cram into a single square mile on animal selection day for sacrifice. Can you imagine three million people in a single square mile? So we have the temple, and it's Passover, and there's tons of people around. And what does Jesus see? He sees this holy place with this rich and sacred history and symbolism, and it hasn't stayed true to its roots. It says this, In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves he said, Get these out of here! 
Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Gentle Jesus, make it mild. This Jesus is angry. He flips over their tables. He shouts at them, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. It's interesting, too. Like, sometimes we imagine that Jesus walks on this scene and he just, like, bursts into this reactive anger. Like, he's showing this big outburst of angry emotion. But it's not like that. He's not reacting to something that he sees. He sees something that makes him angry, and he pauses long enough to make a whip. He takes his time. He's calculated. He's self-controlled. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's why some scholars prefer, rather than calling this the traditional name, the cleansing of the temple, they prefer to call this the temple stunt. Jesus is doing something to make a point here. The trouble is, scholars can agree about that much, but they can't really agree about very much else about this story. Like, what made Jesus so angry in the temple that day? Every scholar that I read seemed to have a different take. And it's especially confusing because this story is included in all four of the gospel accounts, but only in John is it placed at the beginning of the story. The other gospels place it near the end of the story. So it seems like no matter what else the story is is saying, whatever the actual chronology was, John is setting up the rest of the gospel with this story. Like he's setting the scene for everything else that is about to happen after in this gospel. Now, at face value, when we study this passage, it seems pretty clear what Jesus was so angry about. Jesus is obviously angry about people buying and selling animals in the temple courts. And that's a fair interpretation and probably the most common one made by pastors. Almost every sermon that I've ever heard about this passage interprets it that that way. And it does seem to say that. So I was studying this passage this week, and I was texting with a a friend who's a biblical scholar. And I was like, so it kind of seems like Jesus is pretty mad about the marketplace. And she was like, yeah. But like, what if maybe he wasn't mad about that? And I was like, that kind of feels like if your roommate leaves you a note that says, hey, I'm super mad at you for for drinking the last of the milk. And then being like, wow, my roommate seems really mad, but I don't know why. Like, did you not read the note? It says it right there, milk. (laughs) And, And that's how most preachers preach on this text. We know why Jesus was mad, because marketplace. It says it right there in the text. This theory says that the temple system had become so unbelievably corrupt that the religious authorities had actually started to allow a place of worship to become a place of commerce. It would be like if we were having a worship service here, and the other pastors and I said, hey, we're going to invite all of the farmers to set up a farmer's market all around the aisles while we're trying to worship. And And then we made them give most of their profits to us. Like, that would maybe not be great. But here's the thing. Buying and selling animals at the temple for sacrifice, it wasn't wrong back then. The practice wasn't just common. It was actually kind of an economic necessity. So people would be traveling on these pilgrimages to Jerusalem, and it wasn't easy to bring your own animals. It was much easier to just bring an animal or uh, buy an animal at the temple when you arrived for your sacrifice. So that's a good interpretation of the text that Jesus was upset about the marketplace itself, but that might not be all that is going on here. Another interpretation about why Jesus got so angry is about where they set up their pop-up shops. So they, they were there in the court of 
the Gentiles. There were different places in the temple for different types of people, Jewish men, Jewish women, the Gentiles. And this is the only area where the Gentiles were allowed to go in the temple to pray. So this is, this is where people who are already kind of on the, the margins of that religious community, where they were allowed in to come and meet with God. So when Jesus threw out the merchants, it could have been that he was making sure that the Gentiles actually had a space that was set apart to pray and connect with God. And that's another really good interpretation. But it's also possible that there were merchants all over the temple selling in every area of the temple. And this was a way that the merchants were actually trying to include the Gentiles by making sure that they had a place where they could also buy their animal sacrifices where they were allowed to go. They were potentially trying to increase inclusion. So there are lots of possible interpretations and there are good reasons for all of them. So the thing that made Jesus so angry, it's not quite so black and white as we're sometimes taught when we read this text. But there are a few things that we know are clear about this passage. We know what it does not mean. Sometimes pastors have interpreted this passage to mean that Jesus was wholesale condemning the temple and the Jewish faith and their way of life. Jesus is obviously upset about their religious institution and how greedy everyone had gotten and how they turned Passover into some kitschy holiday just to make money. I mean, there's, there's maybe a reason why it's called Jerusalem, right? Thanks, Angie. <laughs> but maybe that's not what's happening here. Jesus isn't wholesale condemning the Jewish people or the Jewish faith. In fact, Jesus never does that. All throughout the Gospels, we read about faithful Jewish people who Jesus sees and Jesus embraces and Jesus hangs out with. Jesus loves the Jewish people. In fact, and this is really important, Jesus was a Jewish person. Jesus worshiped at the temple. He practiced the law. He sent people that he healed to the priests. Jesus believed so strongly in God's covenant with the people that he was always calling them into it. He was always calling them into deeper worship, deeper faith, deeper covenant, deeper connection with God. Jesus isn't flipping over the tables of his Jewish faith. He believes in this faith. He is always with them, always for them, always believing in more for them. So the phrase that we see the Jews in this passage and all throughout the Gospel of John, it's used in a very particular way in this Gospel. It always refers to the specific people in the story who reject Jesus. It's not referring to all of the Jewish people. It usually refers to the religious authorities who are showing some kind of hostility or skepticism toward Jesus. So Jesus' actions here in this story and all throughout the Gospel are about a particular group of people who he is still approaching as a peer as an insider, as one of them. So put a pin in that, that's important, we're going to come back to that. Another thing that this passage is not doing is it's not justifying violence in Jesus' name. Now sometimes churches have used this passage to create this image of a warrior Jesus with six-pack abs and a six-pack of beer. He is a powerful, patriarchal, authoritarian, chest-beating, butt-kicking alpha male. Many of the rioters from the January 6th insurrection, they pointed to this exact passage to justify their violent behavior. You know, sometimes we got to flip over some tables. That is a dangerous interpretation, and it's not what this passage is saying either. If you were around with us this summer, remember the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about. The fruit of the Spirit are attributes that demonstrate that Christ's Spirit is alive and at large in us 
And in the book of Galatians, it lists these out as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. These are things that Jesus always demonstrates. You know what's not on this list? Violence, toxic masculinity, saying mean things about cats. We may not be able to say with absolute certainty what exactly Jesus was upset about in this passage, but we can say with certainty what this passage was not saying. But beyond that, there are a few things that we can say about this passage, and we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about those things. So I'm going to start with a story. Uh, Some of you know that I used to work at a church in Atlanta, and there were a lot of really beautiful things that were happening at this church in Atlanta, and there still are really beautiful things happening. And I think a lot of those things are good and true of the gospel. I believe with all of my heart that Christ is there at that church, and he's making disciples. He was then, and he is now. But I noticed a few things early on there that bothered me. So I worked as a, on the youth ministry staff, and every year we took our students to camp for a week. The camp was called Hard Labor Creek State Park. That was the real name of the real camp that we went to. <laughs> it was a 70-year tradition to go to this camp, and not a lot had changed in 70 years about the traditions, including that all of the kids and the youth staff were white, and all of the support staff were black. The cook who came every year was this wonderful African-American woman named Wheezy, and she would bring her entire family, including her grandkids, to spend the entire week at camp. They kind of had grown up going to this camp alongside our church. And I noticed for the first time, the first time that I was there, that Wheezy's family just kind of kept to themselves in the, the kitchen and the lodge most of the time. So I was new, so I just made the observation. But the next year I decided that I was gonna try to make some connections with Wheezy and her family. At the time, Wheezy's grandkids were about the age of our students in the youth group, so I asked if if Wheezy's grandkids would want to come hang out with us, you know, join the activities for the week, be part of the youth group. And one of them tried to join in for about an hour, and then she went back to the kitchen to be with her grandmother. And I I remember asking my boss about it, like, why why don't they want to come play games with us? It would be fun, we won't charge them, they're just sitting in the lodge all day anyway. And my boss told me something. He said that before he came on staff as the youth director, one of the traditions at the camp was that they would sing every night, they would sing at the worship service these traditional southern songs. Until he listened to the lyrics, and he realized that these were not traditional southern songs, these were traditional Confederate songs. And as soon as he realized what they were, he banned them from camp. He said, we can't sing those songs ever again. But the institutional memory and a church culture that would allow for that to happen, was still present. This was 2008. We were putting on a Christian camp 140 years after the Civil War had ended. And our church was sprinkling Confederate songs into the worship set. Wheezy's grandkids had grown up hearing a bunch of wealthy white kids sing racist songs and then worship Jesus as if the two had anything to do with each other. No wonder they didn't want to hang out with us. The church had made the campfire worship services completely inhospitable to them. I wish I could tell you that I made every effort to change things the next year, but I felt completely out of my depth. And at the time, I didn't realize that I needed to ask more questions. So I just let things stay as they were. Our church had really great things going for it. Yes, 
And there were some things about our church that I think would have made Jesus want to flip over some tables. That's what I think is going on in our passage. Some of the people in the religious establishment back in that day, they're worshiping God faithfully in some ways, and in other ways they have completely left the roots of their faith. And we don't know exactly what they were doing that made Jesus so angry, but maybe the exact activity isn't the point, and maybe it's helpful that we don't know the exact activity because it opens us up to look for ways that Jesus needs to flip tables in our churches and in us today. It is very clear that in some way, shape, or form, they had veered off course, and they are no longer fully worshiping God in the way that God had intended to, and Jesus sees them, and he sees what they could become if they would just follow him. And what he does is he stands as a prophet in a long line, in a long tradition of prophets, critiquing the ways that the people of his day had lost touch with true worship. Now, when you think of the word prophet, lots of us, we think of like a fortune teller with a crystal ball, someone who can predict the future, but, but prophets in the Bible, they're simply truth tellers. They see things as they actually are, and then they call people into something better, something deeper, something truer, something more in line with how God has created them to be. And, and the prophets in the Old Testament, they have these pretty amazing object lessons. When you, when you read Jeremiah, he wore an ox yoke around his neck to, to kind of symbolize Israel's impending oppression from the Babylonian Empire. Ezekiel built a model of Jerusalem, and he laid down next to it for over a year, and he would only eat bread that had been cooked over cow dung. Hosea married a prostitute as a sermon illustration. The prophets were weird dudes, and they did weird things, but they made their point. And here's the interesting thing. Sometimes the prophets would speak out against the oppressive empires of their day, but most of the time, we see the prophets speaking to their own people. They're speaking as insiders, as peers. They were calling their own people into something better than they had imagined for themselves. And all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus joining in this critique. But it's not against the Jewish community. Yeah, I love that. Thanks read my mind. It's not against the Jewish community. It's not outside of the Jewish community. But it's from within. It's as one of their own. It's as someone who loves this community and believes in it and imagines better things for it. It's as someone who's always calling them to be a better version than they've let themselves be. And here's the thing. That's what I believe that the church is called to do too. There are moments in history when the church is called to critique itself, to name the ways that that we have grown away from our roots, and then to call one another back with a new imagination toward what we can become. And I was thinking about this passage. Excuse me. I was thinking about the church, and I think that there are a lot of tables in the American church that Jesus would want to flip over today. Disunity, Christian nationalism, our tendency towards individualism, the fact that we are still so segregated, narcissism among our leaders, neglecting the poor and the marginalized, power abuses, sex scandals. And what I want to do is I want to stand at a distance and point my finger in judgment and name the corruption I see in churches around me, not our church, never our church. I want to claim that that has nothing to do with me or us. I want to call out the other churches and and the leaders that I think are causing harm. I want to deconstruct the parts of the faith that I think are problematic without having to worry about the rebuilding. Sometimes I just want to burn it down. 
because I want to be a prophet, minus the dung bread and stuff. But judging people from a distance who aren't me, naming myself the judge and jury of my faith community, that's not the invitation here. Jesus is a prophet who refuses to stand at a distance from his heavenly throne or from behind his computer screen, wagging his finger at those people. No, Jesus delivers his message from up close as one of them, as a peer, as someone who clearly loves them. He comes as a fellow embodied human, always eager to embrace, always eager to forgive, always eager for us to know that we are loved by the God of the universe no matter what. Always his message is an invitation to return to true worship and to stay true to our roots in him. I think, honestly, I think we see Jesus angry in this passage, but I think under his anger, I think his heart is breaking when he sees disunity, Christian nationalism, our tendency toward individualism, segregation. I think his heart breaks when he sees narcissism among leaders, a church that neglects the poor and the marginalized, power abuses, sex abuses. I think his heart breaks when he sees people he loves still struggling with habitual sin, relationship struggles, pain and hurt, shame that tells us that we aren't good enough. That's not what Jesus wants for us. So when he tells us to return to him, it is always, always an invitation toward healing for us as individuals, for our church, and for the American church, and for the global church. Now there's this interesting moment in the story when Jesus says something a little bit cryptic. The people around him are always asking him for a sign to kind of prove that he is who he says that he is. And he just says, here's your sign. Tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they're like, Jesus, you are crazy. It has already taken us 46 years to build this temple. And we're not even done with it yet. Three days? But Jesus wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about himself. Because the temple was always intended to be the place where heaven and earth would collide. It was this reminder, remember, that they could meet God anywhere. And as we see all throughout John's gospel, that that would come through him now, in his body. He was talking about his own death when he talked about destroying the temple, because he knew that no matter how much he invited and invited and invited, that we couldn't live into this faith on our own. And so we put all of those old ways to death. All the sin, all the shame, all the things that would make him want to flip over those tables. And the Passover lamb of God was sacrificed on the cross for you and for me. And three days later, he rebuilt the temple just as he said, by offering us a new one. The physical temple was always meant to be a pointer. It was always meant to be a sign, a symbol to something greater toward himself, toward the place where heaven and the earth would collide. And then there's this beautiful thing. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come and dwell in and among his followers, that they would become many temples, communities of people where heaven and earth would collide. Can you imagine yourself as a temple? You and I were intended to be temples where God's own spirit would dwell. So when he comes in our lives and he flips over tables, and he calls out places where we have lost touch with our roots. It's not to condemn us. It's not to hurt us. It's not to exert power over us or control over us. It's always, always because we are intended to be just like him. And he's going to root out anything that doesn't belong in that temple. Sometimes 
temples need to be torn down in us, in the church. But they are always meant to be reconstructed in a way that looks like Jesus. It is only Christ's spirit alive in us that can give us any authority to speak into these things that need to change in those around us or in the church. It's only when we become insiders, ourselves in need of God's grace, when we are in touch with that, that we can look at the way that the church is and call it into something better. It is only when we are ready to speak grace and truth like Jesus does that we can ever even enter those courtyards. It's easy to want to deconstruct and to tear down and to stop there. And some of us are in that place. And if you are in that place, you are not alone. And I'm so glad you're here. And I have been in that place. But the invitation in Christ is not to stop at deconstruction. It is always to reconstruct with him. So where do we start? Well, last year, one of the top four podcasts in the world was a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Did anyone listen to this podcast? Lots of us listened to it. This wasn't just like the, the, one of the top four podcasts in the Christian world. This is one of the top four podcasts in the world. It was produced by Christianity Today, and it tells the story of the, the small beginnings and then the explosive growth and then the very public and painful dissolution of a megachurch that once had multiple campuses in Seattle. And I think it's a really important podcast, these, this one or, or ones like it, to listen to because it raises an awareness of some issues that we might look for in a church that is veering off course. But I'll be honest, when I was listening to this podcast, it was hard for me to listen to, not just because of the ways that this particular church had caused a lot of pain to people, but because when I'm being honest, I recognize some of those impulses in me. I could always veer off course. We could always veer off course. And if we aren't paying attention, we could start watering weeds instead of fruits. If I ever entertain the idea that I am immune to the things that corrupt other leaders and institutions, then I am most in danger of falling for them. And here's the thing. I don't think a single religious authority from Jesus' day or a single megachurch pastor who has fallen from grace in our day woke up one day and they were like, what shall I do this day? How about I have a cup of coffee and then stray from worship of God and start taking advantage of people? It never works that way. Most of us won't wake up one day and suddenly decide to lose touch with God. These things happen very slowly, like weeds growing up in a garden that appear before we even knew that they were growing. So we always have to start by asking, what table, what table is Jesus flipping in me? What better life is Jesus inviting me into than the life I'm living now? How could I lose touch of my roots in him if I keep letting these weeds grow up around me? Yes, there are times when we need to, to name things that we see happening in another person or in the church, but we always need to do so as a peer, as one who is also seeking God's grace and transformation in our own personal lives, and to do so in a way that is not condemning but loving and calling people into a deeper and truer faith. So when you came in, you probably got one of these checklists. So pull that out if you have it. It's called the Giving Engaged Feedback. Many of you know that I love Brene Brown, and she talks about ways to give feedback in productive ways. Angie knows I love Brene. Angie's getting a couple shout-outs today because you were gone all summer. I need to shout-out. Um, Angie knows I love Brene Brown. Um, but she talks about giving feedback in a productive way. And so I adapted a checklist that she wrote to give some guidelines for giving 
productive feedback. And if you can't check off all of these boxes, if you have something to say to another person, whether it's at church or in your workplace or in your family or in your, uh, at home, if you can't check off everything on this list, then it's worth spending some time with that thing and offering it to Jesus and saying, how do I start to develop this trait in myself? Part of our role as Christ followers is to help one another grow in Christ-likeness and help our church and the global church function in the way that God has created it to and intended to. And that means that we are invited to share things that we see in one another or in our church body that could grow or change or better reflect the image of Christ. That's an invitation. But we also want that feedback to be given in a way that reflects who Christ is. And who Christ is, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is someone who communicates full of grace and truth. Never does he run short on either one. So this isn't a permission slip to whip each other with the truth or to use violence against each other physically or emotionally, of course. Even in ways that we use our anger, we're intended to use our anger for the other person, for love, for the purpose of God's love, for the church that God created and loves and for the individuals in it. There is a big difference between dumping criticism in another person's lap or a problem in another person's lap and expecting them to fix something you don't like or understand. There's a big difference between that and saying, here's something I see that needs fixing and I want to help and I'm going to stick around to be part of the solution. So let's go through that list and I want you to notice what are the ones that are sticking points for you? What are the hardest ones for you to wrap your mind around? And maybe you have a particular situation in your mind where you're thinking, I need to give feedback to somebody. Maybe read that list with that person in mind. So I know I'm ready to give feedback when my posture is as a peer and fellow Christ follower rather than a critic. I'm ready to sit next to you rather than across from you. I'm willing to put the problem in front of us rather than between us or sliding it towards you. I'm ready to listen, ask questions, and accept that I may not fully understand the issue. I want to acknowledge what you do well, instead of picking apart your mistakes. I recognize your strengths and how you can use them to address your challenges. I can hold you accountable without shaming or blaming you. I'm willing to own my part. I can genuinely thank you for your efforts rather than criticize you for your failings. I can talk about how resolving these challenges will lead to our growth and opportunity. I can model the vulnerability and openness that I expect to see from you. And this is the most important. I can speak to you with grace and truth. Now think about that for a second. If someone came to you like this, how would you respond? Would you feel condemned and judged? Or would you feel embraced and loved? That's what we want in this community. We want this to be a place where no matter what feedback we have to give, whether it's difficult feedback or feedback that is just full of love and grace, all of it we want to be modeled after who Christ is. And this is a helpful checklist. So I'd invite you to, to hold on to that, maybe put it somewhere where you can see it and be reminded of it on a regular basis. And when we sing this next song, I want to invite you to continue to think about what are those places on this list that are hardest for me, and how can I invite the Holy Spirit to change me into a person that can reflect who Christ is in the way that I communicate feedback. So let's pray. God of grace and truth. As we talked about this month, some of us lean more towards one or the other. We pray that you would balance those in us by your spirit, that you would cultivate both grace 
and truth in us. Starting with how we see ourselves, how we experience your love, and that what we are breathing in, we would breathe out onto those around us. God, we pray that as you um, continue to teach us in this community, in our households, in our relationships with our roommates and our families, our spouses, our colleagues, our professors, our friends, and as we interact with the church, whether that's this church at Anchor Bay or the global church, we pray that you would fill us with a kind of love that always hopes, that is full of healing and your words for everyone who you have created and loved. We love you. We offer this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.